Hello, everyone. This is Alex Trumbull, and this is the Executive Pill Podcast. Um, today's episode is a little bit different than what we normally have, um, and you'll see why very, very, very quickly. Um, but as always, we say this is this this podcast, this show, this space is is built, created, and and consistently fed into to help those individuals who want to move to the executive level, whether it be VPs, SVP, C-suite. Um, this is a space for you, and. What I've always been talking about is that it's not just enough to understand how to navigate organizational politics. It's not just enough to understand the, the leadership skills and the budgeting, the program management, and so on and so, so on and so forth. Those things are important, extremely important. But I think the reality is, is that, again, we live in a very global world. So if you want to be successful as a leader, you need to understand what is happening around the world and how and why that is impacting you um, and why it should be why it should be important to you. Um, so today, again, we have on a phenomenal guest and that we've had a, a friend of the show we've had on now this third time, third or fourth, maybe third or fourth so. time. Um, without any further ado, I, I'd like to say today is a good day, but um, let's just let's just move forward. Um, so today's guest is uh, Michael Patrick Malloy, who Milroy, who who we like to go, or he likes to be called. I'm, I call him because we're friends now. I'm, I feel like a special Mick. Okay, so Mick is the co-founder of the Lobo Institute. He's a former deputy assistant secretary for the U.S. Department of Defense. He is a retired CIA paramilitary officer and U.S. Marine. He is currently, and been for the last three years, um, the ABC's News national security analyst, as well as a senior fellow for the Middle Eastern Institute. Um, again, you can see from his very short um, intro that there's nothing else that needs to be said. The guy knows what he's talking about. So with no further ado, how are you doing today, kind sir? It's either that or I can't hold a job, I guess. Um, I'm, doing, I'm doing pretty good. I mean, it's fall in Montana. Um, it's supposed to actually snow here on Wednesday, believe it or not. So we're, we had a short fall. Um, but it's fine because if you can see behind me, that's our ski resort. So snow is not a bad thing. But we do have a lot of serious stuff to talk about today. There's no doubt about it. There's a lot. It's it's good in Montana, but not so good in uh, other parts of the world. You know, I actually want to ask you a question. That we're gonna, I'm going to keep for later. But remember, I'm going to ask you a question because, um, yeah, it's a very I think important question. But let's let, we're going to talk about today. Um, the crisis, what's happening um, right now in regards to um, uh, Palestine, um, Hamas, and Israel. Um, if you could be brief, just to bring us up to speed, why are we in this place? Sorry, where are we right now and why are we there? Yeah, and Alex, I will be brief because, I mean, you could talk about this for two weeks. You'd be like, dude, stop talking because there's so much history here, right? It is, and in many ways, it's all of our histories because of the significance of this area of the world. Um, but essentially, after World War II, um, the state of Israel was created. So about 1949, the UN recognized it as a state. And it, at the time, uh, was dealing with an influx of Jewish European uh, people after World War II, obviously after the Holocaust, and then also um, dealing with the people who lived there with the Palestinians. And, and it was a, right before Israel was called, the, I think, British Palestine. Um, after that, there was, of course, a lot of contentions. There were two significant wars um, that I'd bring up for this for relevance of this discussion. 1967, Six-Day War, in which Israel seized uh, the Golan Heights uh, the West Bank, 
in Gaza. So those are the three um, contested areas, especially uh, the West Bank and Gaza. And those are places where Palestinians live. And, uh, and that's when they were seized. After that, the Palestinian Authority was put in charge of Gaza um, and recognized as such. But in 2006, uh, oh, the other war was the Yom Kippur War in 1973, which was very similar to these. But those two shaped the modern uh, situation and the political negotiations, which have come up many times, the Oslo Accords, Camp David Accords. But nobody has been able to come up with a solution suitable to both sides, which is a two-state solution in which you have a state for the Palestinians, a state for the Israelis that live side by side in peace. That is that is the U.S. policy. That is the policy that I personally think uh, is the best moving forward. But in 2006, uh, the Hamas, which means the Islamic Jihad, it's actually an acronym. It's, the word is, uh, is an acronym, um, seized power in Gaza. Uh, and that has been the case ever since. There's been a contention between this recognized terrorist organization recognized by the United States, the EU, and many other countries since 1997, I believe, um, they've seized power. And their purpose in existence, as they say, is Palestine from the river to the sea, which means there is no Israel and there's no state of Israel. So it's the destruction of Israel. And so that is, that is the circumstances that led up to this. And of course, the Palestinians seeing in many ways no hope toward a two-state solution and being, you know, quite frankly, very impoverished in the areas in which they live without any real path forward for economic prosperity and statehood, uh, they were very unhappy with the situation. So that is, and then in addition to that, we had what's called the Abraham Accords, where countries like Bahrain and the UAE had uh, essentially normalized relationships with Israel. And now there's what they call the mega deal, where the current uh, administration, the Biden administration, is working with Saudi Arabia and Israel basically to do the same thing, to normalize relations. And Hamas doesn't want that. They don't want an Israel that's you know, essentially at peace and has normal relationships with all the other Gulf Arab states. So many believe that that was one of the uh, things that instigated uh, the horrible attack that happened on October 7th, where up to 1,500 uh, Hamas fighters infiltrated, obviously an intelligence building, we can get into that if you'd like, uh, infiltrated Israel and killed, you know, about over a thousand civilians and took over 200 hostages. And some of the most depraved acts that we've seen since ISIS in Syria, quite frankly. And now we're at the precipice of potential ground invasion by the IDF, the Israeli Defense Forces, into uh, the Gaza Strip, as they call it. So, you know, Mick, you can, you've been on a number of times now. We, we've talked about Ukraine when all that situation got rolling and is still going. Um, we talked about the um, uh, Afghanistan uh, when the pullout happened and all the, the, the turmoil that, that, that resulted from that. Um, so what I really appreciate having you on, because most people are are looking at social media and they're seeing a two minute clip of someone trying to explain something in two minutes or three minutes, and they're making a judgment based off of two, three minutes 
of, of information that's literally and probably skewed in a particular direction. So again, I love having you on because you, you are always, I feel like so middle of the road, just sharing facts. Um, so one of the things I thought was very interesting is that you, I'm not sure if you did this on purpose, but you, you, there, there was a distinction between Hamas and the broader, um, Palestinian, um, community. Um, I'm not sure if all, everyone always knows that. Yeah, absolutely. That's true. And there's, uh, you know, I am the middle of the road on most things. And for ABC, I'm an analyst. So my job for them is to give people the facts and, and I do provide my analysis on military and national security stuff, but you know, everything else is up to them. Uh, and that's why I view that's, that's the most helpful for me. I don't, I, I don't want to tell people what to think. Uh, I want to kind of give them the idea of what's going on and, and they think for themselves, you know, just like Socrates said. But on that, you're, you're exactly right. So Hamas is a designated terrorist group. They're a specific uh, group that uh, is promotes violence against Israel. Um, they have not helped the Palestinians, the rest of the Palestinians, who are all, you know, innocent civilians in this matter at all. Um, uh, right now, there's a humanitarian crisis inside Gaza. I would hope that the all of the food aid, food, water, medicine would be released and allowed into Gaza. It's unacceptable uh, for that not to be allowed, quite frankly. There's two million people that live there. They're dependent on, on food aid. And uh, right now it is essentially running out. And so um, the Palestinian people, I think, deserve to live in a state of their own that is at peace with Israel. Uh, and and then to, to prosper just like any other country in the world and try to develop their own e economy and educational system and everything, just like every country does. Uh, and of course, Israel has a right to do the same thing. And Israel is a democracy of which the U.S. has supported since its inception. Uh, one of the reasons that the United States is so tied uh, to them is because we were one of the biggest proponents along with the U.K. in establishing the country itself. And so that's why there's there's so much ties and so much financial support to Israel. Uh, and it's one of the few democracies, of course, in the Middle East, um, or only democracy in the Middle East. So that is uh, Iraq. Iraq is now a democracy, mm. thanks to a lot of effort for a lot of people. But um, Israel is, is, is a democracy. And so that's one of the reasons why President Biden uh, connected the, the two between support for Ukraine and support for Israel which might seem like two totally opposite things, but his connection was that they were both uh, long-term mm -hmm. partners of the United States in which they were both democracies and the U.S. being the leader of the free world has an obligation uh, to support them. But that is where we are right now. And, and you know, the, the nearest thing of concern for me as a military analyst and is the upcoming potential ground invasion of Gaza which uh, could happen you know, any day now. They've been poised and ready, uh, ready to do so, but many people think that they've been delaying based on the ongoing efforts to get hostages uh, out before the invasion starts. So I, I love to understand, um, we talk about a ground invasion, but what does that look like in regards to like scale? Um, because you can't, it, it, Israel is, is relatively powerful in that region. Um, Hamas yes. is, a, is a segment of a people, if a, a smaller group within a, it's like they, they, they intentionally embed themselves in with civilians. Um, yes. So what does this even look like to try to 
to try to take on. Uh, that's right. So to to your point, Hamas hides behind civilians. They generally put their headquarters under hospitals and schools. Why? Because they know uh, they're generally an off-target list for any military activity, right? Hospitals, schools, uh, religious institutions, those are generally off the strike list, as we call it, except when military uses it to try to hide. So that's why that becomes more um, contested when the military goes into a hospital and tries to hide there, then uh, any country that's trying to fight that would have to deal with that legal issue. Uh, so how, what would it look like? Very bad, um, undoubtedly very bad. So if the, the comparison that I've tried to make that I think is, is fair is in 2016, 17, the U.S. assisted the Iraqi security forces to include the Kurdish Peshmerga, about 100,000 of them, to try to take back the city of Mosul from about 9,000 ISIS fighters. It took nine months. There was around 10 to 12,000 civilian casualties. There was around, I believe, 6,000, 7,000 uh, killed on the Iraqi side and all, most all the ISIS fighters were killed. So if you take that, again, nine months it took, and it devastated Mosul. It was about $50 billion worth of damage. Yeah. Gaza, uh, Gaza right now, there's about 100,000 for sure arrayed IDF soldiers, armor, armor personnel carriers, plus about 300,000 reservists, plus about 70,000 that are up to fighting or preparing to fight in the north should Hezbollah get involved. We could talk about that. So they have at least as many people and more to put at the fight. Hamas has around 40,000 fighters. So compared to ISIS, 9,000, mm -hmm. Hamas, 40,000. And Hamas has about 300 plus miles of tunnels under Gaza, something that ISIS did not. So in order to to what the Israelis' objective is, is a complete destruction or to destroy Hamas, which in military terms means it's no longer capable of operating as a military force unless it's rebuilt. Mm -hmm. That's their objective. To do that, they're going to have to go in block by block, floor by floor, basement by basement, and tunnel by tunnel. And it could take months and months. And if the civilian population is still there, we're going to see incredible amounts of civilian collateral damage, civilian deaths. And it's going to be very destructive. Buildings are going to drop. Um, tunnels are going to be blown up. There's going to, it's going to be extraordinarily destructive. And it's going to have, I think, I think substantial loss of human life, even if the Israelis are as, is, as careful as they can. It's simply urban warfare at its worst. You, you use the word if, if civilians are still there. Um, do they have any place to go to not be there? Also a good question. So there's been calls uh, since since basically it was obvious that the Israelis were going to go in there to create a, a humanitarian corridor. And what they mean by that is a designated uh, route on a map where obviously both Hamas and the IDF leaves open, right? So because they have, the Israelis have, uh, 
told everybody in the northern part, and that's where most of the fighting will take place. That's likely to be where most of the initial incursions come in from the IDF to move to the south without being targeted, of course, um, and that a humanitarian safe zone be established, preferably by the United Nations, where people could go. It's monitored, so it's not infiltrated by Hamas fighters, and people could receive food, water, medicine, power, right, mm -hmm. which is necessary for all this. Now, it's way easier said than done, um, but that is that is the intent. Uh, it's I think it's happened. The last numbers I saw is about out of the 1.1 million in the north, about 650,000 hasn't has moved to the south. So that's good. But that leaves, you know, my marine math are still there's still a couple, you know, many hundreds of thousands that need to move. Mm -hmm. Right. Mm -hmm. And in it's again, it's easier said than done. Some are in hospitals, some can't move. There's nothing down. And then, of course, we have this problem of no, the food isn't getting it right. So they, they need around 400 trucks a day just to sustain where they were. And they are getting like 20. So that's not going to work. So that's from a humanitarian. You have to have the, the the means in the South to lure people down there to get them out of the way in this invasion. That's um, so the, the it's called Rafa, the gate that's mm -hmm. between Gaza and in Egypt, which is controlled by Egypt and Hamas. That needs to be completely open. And I think you know, the Israelis need to let it stay open so that they can do that. Or they go into Egypt, which obviously Egypt's not too keen on. But in order to get these civilians out of the way, it needs to be a safe haven in the south of Gaza, or they do it in in Egypt. And uh, hopefully, the UN uh, can can do. I know they're doing everything they can, but can get the international community to step up and provide that support. You, 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 again, you, you talk, again, I'm just riffing right now. Um, you talked about the the aid that's required, that's that's, that's needed right now, um, and there's already aid being sent there before all of this, right? Like the, the, the people in this area seem to be very, I'm not sure if the word is impoverished, um, but, but very reliant on resources. So it just sounds like this, I think I'll, I'll say it out there. Cause I'm, I'm not, a, I'm not a news analyst. Um, this is going to hurt a lot of people. That's what it sounds oh, yeah. like. Yeah, so it is there. I think it was about 65% of the population is dependent on food aid before this started. Mm -hmm. So, and now the food, so there, if the food doesn't come in, it's not, they don't have a lot of ability to generate. They certainly can't start from scratch and generate their own food, but they started from a bad position, to your point, yeah. uh, a dependency on food aid. And the power and water is all controlled by Israel, right? So they can, they can turn it on and turn it off. Now, militarily, certainly can understand why, especially when you go in, you're going to want to turn the power off. If it being just from a tactical point of view, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. water, you know, from my perspective, and you know, I, and I have friends on both sides of this conflict and, and it is, uh, you know, difficult for a lot of people to talk about it because they are so, you know, involved on one side or the other. Um, militarily, it makes sense to certainly cut the power off before you go in. Cause if, if you're going to do it under cover of darkness and you feel like you have an advantage with the night vision, Yes, mm -hmm. but um, I think Hamas planned all of this out way before they even attacked Israel. So um, in these tunnels, I would imagine there's massive food stocks, massive water, mm -hmm. obviously ammunition and all that stuff. So the people that are going to be most hurt by any kind of mm -hmm. blockade of food and water, yeah. just as just as civilians, right? Yeah. Um, and that's and that's to me, it's 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 unacceptable. So I hope that gets opened. 
I, I would hope that there is no more delay. And I think I think you're seeing the White House, who has obviously um, shown great support for Israel with the president of the United States going there and, and delivering the speech that he did, but also uh, looking to uh, have humanitarian aid go to Gaza and pushing, I think, behind the scenes mostly uh, for all the blockade on food, water, uh, fuel is a little more contentious, but but certainly yeah. food, water, and and uh, medicine. The reason why fuel is contentious because it can obviously be used mm-hmm. by Hamas, but but it's also needed for the generators for the hospital, yeah, right, because they get a lot of their power, especially if power is cut off from the generator. So um, that is an issue that's going to be ongoing, even if the IDF, you know. Uh, steps off the line of departure and, and goes into their attack position and goes into Gaza in the next few hours. The humanitarian situation is only going to get worse. It's only going to get worse. So they're going to have to figure out how to distribute food, water, medicine to the innocent civilians of Gaza now because it's only going to get more complicated when when the actual ground offensive has begun. Wow. Oh, God. So I, I want to ask you about I, how did I, I was asking before how did we get here, but I don't have a different version of that question. Of how did we get here? Um, I I know years before you know after the what, the 2014 conflict between Hamas and 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 Israel, I know there is a there is a big military kind of build up there is the um the, the iron dome right i think it was the like iron dome that was um donated from unit from the united states over to, to israel to help protect against rockets um what happened that this that this was able to happen actually i think i, I think a lot of people were still pretty surprised yeah even the israelis were surprised right so this level of assault i don't think anybody saw coming so one of the big factors is the country of iraq Iran supports Hamas. 90% of their military budget comes from Iran. They also support uh, Hezbollah, which is another group that maybe, and we can talk about it, but they're, they're in the north in Lebanon, and it's, there's a big concern that they could be a northern front to this, this, uh, this war. And then they, and Iran also supports the Houthis in Yemen, which uh, with, just last week, the U.S. had to intercept yeah, yeah. cruise missiles and drones shot at them, likely at Israel. And then Iran also is in Syria. So they could create a forefront war, which may challenge the IDF's ability to defend itself. And that's why the U.S. has two aircraft carrier strike groups off the coast of Israel. One's on route, but they'll be there. Mm. One Marine Expeditionary Unit, 2,000 Marines, and then all sorts of be prepared to deploy notices going out. Because if it becomes a regional war or if it looks like uh, the IDF can't handle, it's likely we'll become involved. And we become involved first with air, probably lastly with ground. I don't think the Israelis need ground forces. Uh, you know, they have a total of 500,000. Uh, but certainly with air, with, uh, with naval gunfire uh, and other, we might. And then, of course, we are in Syria and Iraq, and they've been attacking our places. So if they attack us, we're obviously going to defend ourselves. So there's a big yeah. chance for this to explode. So it, it's already bad, right? So Gaza ground incursion, bad, really bad. A yeah. lot of a lot of uh, human suffering there. But if it expands, this could be a regional war, and that's what people are 
really worried about because Iran is kind of pulling the strings of all these groups. And they're the ones that provided them all the, the missiles and mm. rockets and all the stuff they use, the paragliders, all that stuff is coming from Iran who likes to fight their wars, you know, fight yeah. through proxies. You know, somebody else is doing the, the, the dying uh, uh, for them. And that's Hamas, Hezbollah, uh, and groups like the Houthis. Well, I, I, I want to, I'm going to open really quickly. I'm going to, soon I'm going to open up for you to just any, any additional things you have to share. But I, I want to ask you, um, you know, is there, for those individuals who, who feel so, there's a lot of people I see on social media commenting on both sides, all sides on what is best, what happened, why, you know, again, there's a lot of, like you said, there's, this has been going on for a long time. There is a lot of, a lot of very difficult realities. I think facts that people don't know about um, on all sides. Um, like what would you recommend people do to be informed? If they, if they care, if they actually care, what would you recommend they do to be informed versus, or should they just listen to whatever social media channel they're on and just soak it all up? <laughs> uh, not the latter. Um, <laughs> you know, and I've, I've gotten several people who've asked me, especially relatives um, on there, I'm getting on both, both sides of this issue, what they should read. And I asked somebody I thought was more knowledgeable about that than me, and they said, nothing now. I mean, it's everything's changed since uh, October 7th. So if you try to go back and read, I mean, you can educate yourself on how we got here. But, you know, his point was October 7th has changed everything. I don't know if that's accurate, but certainly this person is in a, I would hope that the first thing we can do, and, and what I've watched in this, is acknowledge that killing innocents is never acceptable, period. So if, if, if a person gets on and just talks about um, the innocent people on their side getting killed, but doesn't even acknowledge the other one, then they're not part of the solution. You're, you're simply not part of the solution. If you can't acknowledge that, you know, baby's dying on one side, it's just bad as baby's dying on the other, yeah. then you, you're, you, you are a, a partisan to the point of actually enhancing the issue, the problem, mm -hmm. and not solving it. That's what I would say. Yeah. So start there. After that, I think, I think people, at least philosophically, can understand the need for both sides to have a country and both sides to have safety and security for their citizens. And so, you know, there's an old Roman saying that if you don't know, you know, what port you're going to, then no wind is good, right? Because it does, you don't know. So if you, if you have that as a, as a path, and, and I know we've had this for decades, so it's not like I've come up with an idea here, but then it's all about getting to that. And, and, and you have to acknowledge that, you know, terrorists killing innocent civilians is never acceptable and never should be accepted. And that both sides have, you know, the right to live in peace. And how do we get there? And it's not always about talking about the past. Because even in families, you can know that doesn't work. Like if you can't, mm -hmm. if you can't move on from, from arguments, then it's just a, just a repeat, repeat, repeat. Well, who has more rights than the others? And it, it's, good, it's good to know the history, but if the history is gonna rule the, the future, then it's just gonna be one giant debate and most people that are involved in debate actually don't have anything with the consequences, yeah. right? Yeah. So they're not the people in Gaza that are actually trying to find their next meal. They're not the you know Israeli kibbutz that just got raided and everybody killed. They're just somebody who just is part of the chatter. So I think if you're going to be 
part of the solution. You have to push all parties that have a say in this toward a solution that's lasting and one that is, is, is absent of uh, violence and one that, that goes toward. And then, of course, when this is over, this, this assault, we have to look at what's the next step, the civil political future for the people of Palestine, both in the West Bank and Gaza. And how are we going to get away from, um, you know, Hamas ruling it? Because that's a non-starter. Mm-hmm. There's no way that's ever going to be accepted. And, and and come up with a a political solution for the Palestinians that works for the Palestinians. And not for the Iranians who just want to see continuous wars. And not for their own personal, you know, pocketbook. Because, you know, there's quite frankly quite a, a lot of corruption. Uh, they need to get leaders that are that are in it for the Palestinian people. And then we should push forward with the two state solution that the U S has always been a part of, but unfortunately we've never gotten there. You know, um, last thing I'll say on this, I want to open back up to you is I read this book by, um, again, former secretary of defense, uh, Condoleezza Rice. And she, and she shared in that book, no greater honor, um, the negotiations that were going on between Israel and Hamas and how, they were this close to coming up with a deal and the last minute yeah. they broke down. Um, yeah. I shared to say, it's, it sounds like this it's not impossible, right? Um, we, and, if you, and if you give up on coming to, to some sort of deal, then, then it, will, it is impossible if you give up. So I'm, I'm hoping that they will continue to push forward and trying to solve this. And again, I'm I just, as I've been looking around, it sounds like this newer, and it's always the young generation. It's always the young generation who pushes for some sort of change. Um, you know, I, I, I watched this video on a bunch of uh, younger Palestinians saying, hey, look, I'm, I'm, I don't want this war anymore. And they're trying to push against the people in, in, their, in their side who are doing stuff. I saw you know, a growing number of uh, Isra- younger Israelis saying, hey, look, this is not cool what's going on, whether it be the settlements and whether it be, you know, a whole list of other things. Hey, we need to we need to do something different so we can stop the killing. Period. You know, mm-hmm. um, so I'm hoping that something will in our lifetime. I hope this, this like you said, there's the, the loss of life is by civilians. It's just it's it's horrible, especially when it's a war between um, two sides that aren't the civilians. The the ones that caught in the middle. <laughs> Yeah, um, I'm, you're I'm right. not laughing because it's funny. It's, I'm, I'm just laughing because it's just like, why? Is this? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, it is tough. And maybe it's a combination of those two things you just said. A new generation on both sides that finds this completely unacceptable and not the path they want to be on. Plus the fact that we have gotten very close in the past. So you, you talk mm-hmm. about Secretary Rice. Um, she's exactly right. And if you go back to the Clinton administration, they had what was called the Clinton proposition, I think. And it was uh, Dennis Ross, you know, a friend of mine, was his main negotiator. They got to 94% agreement. 94% of what they had to talk about, um, they agreed on. It was a 6% that they didn't agree on. So, and now look what's happening because of the 6%. So maybe there will be a push, especially because this, yeah. you know, it's, it's certainly understandable why Israel wants to destroy Hamas. I mean, you mm-hmm. can just look at what happened. But after that, there has to be a rebuilding of Gaza, there has to be uh, not just humanitarian aid, so they they get with the, the basic sustenance. But how do they get to an economy that's fruitful and that there's a future for people, the young people you're talking about, and 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 then also the young people in Israel that can live in peace and not have to worry about 
rockets continuously coming and the need for the Iron Dome, which is a great system, but it can easily, it can't, not easily, it can be over, overwhelmed because mm-hmm. like, for example, Hezbollah has 150,000 rockets. Like there's no, there's no system in the world that can handle that. They, they, they could be thousands of Israelis. And so the, I think that is the path forward is young people that are going to look at this differently and are going to be willing to concede more to get a peaceful outcome for both peoples to live side by side um, for the future. You, you make me think one thing we talked about before, I think a, a earlier session, which was the whole fact that um, this is so difficult because you can't just go after Hamas. You can't just go after the, the group that you're, you're intended to because they embed themselves in the, in, in the civilians. And then what does that cause when you go after them and you, and you, and you, and you hurt and harm civilians and what cycle does that breed right and they say oh wow you know, my uncle was killed my this was killed and now that yep. they join like this is this is so so bad so difficult and like that we have to figure out um how, how to end this I, I know you have to you literally have to jump on on tv in a few minutes so is there anything that you would like to share before we wrap up so the one thing i always share with you, Alex, is is an issue that's near and dear to uh, not just my heart, but also the co-founder of Lobo Institute. We have an NGO that's called In Child Soldiering. Um, what it does is it focuses on kids that either are child soldiers to get them out or those that have been and to get them rehabilitated so they have a future. And these forever wars magnify that problem. Mm-hmm. So the Middle East, uh, has it, the problem in the last four years is doubled, almost tripled. Um, because the longer wars go on, the more younger the soldiers are. And the, and you talk about innocence. Now you have innocence actually fighting the war that they didn't start, didn't choose, and like you don't even know anything about. Uh, so we have we have a group. There's other groups out there. So I, I, I'm more about talking about the actual issue and the, and the issue that needs to address uh, kids having being forced to fight wars that adults started. Um, so we and child soldiering is ours, but there's also the Dallaire. Uh, foundation there's save the children there's many of those groups and if anybody's interested in uh, assisting in that uh, i would i would uh, advocate for them going online and doing their research seeing what they can do hey thank you so much mick for for coming back and and spending your time and sharing your ideas and thoughts uh, with us everyone again if you're interested in learning about what's going on and staying abreast i encourage you honestly to they can actually you can follow mick not to be putting you out there but you they can follow you on linkedin without you know connecting so you can follow him he's always putting out great stuff he's always on tv doing uh sharing really great information um so again thank you so much mick for being here um everyone you know where I'm going. If you found something of value from this episode, don't just keep it for yourself. Share it with someone else. Don't just look back, reach back. Bring someone else to the table. Help them grow themselves and keep them informed about what's going on in the world. Because again, I don't think it's it's possible to be a true leader without being a global, a global citizen, a global leader nowadays. So as always, everyone, I encourage you to stay strong, stay positive, and definitely stay moving. See ya. Thanks for listening to The Executive Appeal with Alex Trumbull. I invite you to follow The Executive Appeal wherever you listen to podcasts. Follow me, your host, Alex Trumbull, across all socials or via email for exclusive webinars, courses, and speaking engagements on continued topics of executive leadership. So until next time, stay strong, stay positive, and definitely stay moving.